Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. There are just, well, I guess it would be about 48 hours left in the Trump presidency, assuming that you're listening to this afternoon. There's less than 48 hours less left in the Trump presidency. And joining us once again is our good friend, David Priest, who is the chief operating officer of Lawfare and the author of, well, books on presidential briefings and, and on removing a president. So all those things are in the news, David. Happy Monday, by the way. Happy Monday and Charlie. Happy New Year, because believe it or not, I have not been on since the beginning of this year, which it seems like started about eight years ago. We've, packed more, we've packed more history into 17 or 18 days than most people have in a decade. Yeah, 2020 being this the worst year possible and 2021 comes in and says, hold my beer. Yeah. Okay, before we get into all of this stuff, um, because there's a lot there's a lot going on to catch up on uh hogan gidley is he does he still work in the white house does anybody still work in the white house i don't know anybody actually works in the white house charlie i mean Uh, i he he may have a position officially but the 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 kinds of things he's doing i would not qualify as work okay so he's one of the spokespeople i guess uh kaylee mcenany is has gone off he's she's disappeared but he uh he's explaining why the president is not uh speaking out more uh forcefully just play the soundbite here then uh, the media, though, are trying to have it both way, ha- uh, both ways, Howie. On one hand, he should be censored by big tech and not be allowed to talk. Uh, he also shouldn't say anything because it's divisive. And then when he doesn't say anything and can't say anything because the platforms have been re- have removed him, they say, where's the president? Why aren't we hearing from him? The whole thing's disingenuous. And- OK, I'm going to take a deep breath here. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the president of the United States. Yeah. Did, did Teddy Roosevelt have a social media platform when he carried the big stick. Well, I mean, how, did, how did was he, he going to communicate account? with the public? It's so hard. Well, like, yeah, I am the president of the United States. There are hundreds of people whose job it is 24-7 to report everything I say and do. And yet somehow, because I don't have a Twitter account, I cannot, ha- you know, I cannot make myself heard. I mean, this it's, is like, this is like bullshit on steroids from these people. Do they actually believe this? He's going this out. Part- He's going out on a different platform than he ran on, but but people like Gidley are making him go out as you know the victim candidate, the whining candidate. Yes. Uh, he comes in, I am the strong leader, only I can solve everything. I'm smarter than the generals. You need me. Everyone else is an idiot. And he's leaving whining about not having every privilege from every corporation in America to broadcast his message. It's sad, it's pathetic, and it's entirely predictable. It is entirely predictable. And and, and I'm and I'm struggling and and failing. Actually I'm not struggling that hard to say, you know, I I told you so you were warned about this. But but I remember back in twenty sixteen thinking, why do you guys think that he's a strong leader or he's a manly man? He's this whiny little bully on the playground. I mean he's complaining all the time. Anytime things don't go his way it's like, oh, it's rigged against me. It's terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm being I'm being oppressed. But this one, you're the president of the United States. All eyes are on you still um, for, you know, for a lot of different reasons. And you say, yeah, I can't speak out because I don't have social media platforms. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. And, and right. the, the whole claim that, uh, you know, Hogan Gidley extends it and says, you know, no other president has had to to deal with this. You know, I can name what, 40-some who did pretty well getting their message out to the public, some who didn't have a good message to get out to the public, I'll I'll give them that, some of whom did not really massage that relationship well, I'll give them that, 
but you have no president in the United States who has trouble getting a message out and to even claim so uh, is it's just embarrassing. If only, if only Franklin Delano Roosevelt had had Facebook page. <laughs> I mean, he could have he could have kicked the depression's ass much earlier. There's, there's no question about it. OK, so this is one of those days where it is it is it is difficult to get a handle on, um, you know, where where we're at. The pardons are coming. We have two days left in the in the in the presidency. You have Washington in complete lockdown. You had this very dystopian story reported uh, the Department of Defense is having to vet all of the National Guard troops coming in to make sure that there are no uh, pro-Trump radicals in in the uh, in their ranks. But I, but I want to start with this because this is this is right in your wheelhouse. The the op ed piece that appeared in The Washington Post the other day by Susan Gordon, mm -hmm. who was the principal deputy director of national intelligence from 2017 to 2019. Um, somebody who gave the president of the United States his briefing, my understanding. And she wrote a piece saying that, uh, you know, as a former president, Trump doesn't actually need to know stuff. So cut off his intelligence briefings. And it's really remarkable. Uh, she writes, for four years as president, he has received or had opportunity to receive every single piece of information and analysis that the intelligence community provided, produced, regardless of comportment or class, uh, com compartment or classification. It's hard to overstate the value of what he has read and heard. And then she talks about his post White House security profile is daunting. Any former president is by definition a target and presents some risk. But a former President Trump, even before the events of last week, might be unusually vulnerable to bad actors with ill intent. So, David, Priest, your thoughts. Should Donald Trump receive continue to receive these security briefings as traditionally ex-presidents do? No. And I say that as someone who actually sees the value of these uh, more than many others who simply dismiss it as ridiculous that a former president would get the intelligence briefings. I mean, listen, when I was back at CIA, I remember going to Houston to brief former President George H.W. Bush um, before a trip he made out to the Middle East. It's something that is done for presidents who behave according to the I mean, very low standards, I will say, of how former presidents are supposed to behave. I mean, Jimmy Carter was a bit of a freelancer. Jimmy Carter would go overseas and not follow instructions that uh, the current president had given him to follow. And yet he was still treated as a respectable member of the ex-presidents club. The idea is, when it works well, the idea is that former presidents, when they go overseas, are, are still seen as important. Often they're still seen as a representative of the US government, even if they no longer have that title. And there's reason for that is presidents have been used that way before as emissaries of the current administration who don't necessarily want to send a formal delegation somewhere, but they just want to get a private message through. Even if not, the other countries they visit do treat them that way. And so it mm -hmm. makes sense for presidents to be prepared to make sure they don't go overseas and say something galactically stupid that would be obvious even from a low-level classified briefing. Um, it's also a courtesy to the person who is in the Oval Office because they might be seeking out advice from the people who preceded them in that office because nobody else knows what it's really like. And we've had cases going back, I mean, you could take John Kennedy reaching out to Dwight Eisenhower and they did not like each other, mm -hmm. but he reached out to him and said, we really need to talk after the Bay of Pigs debacle. So you've got a history here. The, the thing is, though, all of those variables wash away with Trump. Yeah. None of them apply. 
Trump is not going to represent the U.S. officially. If anything, the U.S. government is going to have to disavow things he says and does. You're not going to have any current president, Biden or anyone after him, trusting Donald Trump to do any semi-official government business. And you, you certainly aren't going to have presidents reaching out to Trump for wise counsel on how to handle the presidency because he will be seen as the failure of a presidency and someone you don't want to seek advice. So all of the reasons why you would have a former president getting access to intelligence briefings completely wash away. And I'm in 100% yeah. agreement with Sue Gordon on this. Yeah, when you first hear it, it's kind of startling. And then you realize, no, this makes perfect sense. Because the the only possible reason to give him the briefing is to mitigate some damage that he would do. But that seems uh, that that doesn't seem very, very plausible. Right, yeah. He's if, going if to if say we... something galactically stupid anyway. Right. And the fact that it may be misused. See, here's the thing, though, that we just don't have a a track, a, a roadmap for dealing with a pariah ex-president. So well, somebody, and we he's do, going but to we have to go way back. Um, well, Nixon or? Yeah, I know. I'm talking really older. Okay. I'm talking way before our time. Um, we're we're going to have to go back to the 19th century when presidents left office and sometimes just didn't interact with the elite again. Um, you have cases where some of them were virtually shunned. And that's okay. Now, back then, of course, there weren't things like yeah. you know, presidential pensions and briefings and things like that to even deal with. But there is no reason why a former president can't just retire to his farm a la George Washington and live out his life without interacting at the highest level. Um, and that's George Washington we're talking about. It's certainly for someone yeah. like a John Tyler, who ends up joining the Confederate States of America. We have a history of shunning presidents, uh, former presidents who do bad things or aren't worthy we just need to rediscover that history and realize that there's nothing special in this era about a former president unless the current president deems it to be so and finds some value. And that's the whole yeah. thing is this is a custom. It's a tradition. It's not in law. So, yeah, if Joe Biden thinks that Trump can be useful to him, he can call him up like any yeah, other citizen and like try that. to help him out. But otherwise, let him go. You know, you, this you, you, this is kind of a digression, but you got me thinking about this, that we, we've had really horrible uh, presidents in the past. You know, Andrew Johnson was just a completely deplorable human being on just on every level. Uh, John Tyler actually became became a traitor. But I don't think that the damage that they did in their post presidency is anything approaching Donald Trump. And, and, and this is one of the I guess. It, it's one of the markers of how the presidency has become so powerful, how it has become so outsized that the damage of somebody like Donald Trump is mm -hmm. exponentially greater than the damage of an ex-president Tyler or anybody else. Because, you know, he leaves office. And I, I was thinking about all the articles that have been written, you know, from from, you know, the the anti-anti-Trumpers like, well, it wasn't so bad. Well, America survived that. Well, you know, we're just moving on. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of the fundamental way that American politics and culture have been changed in just four years. It is stunning watching not just what's happened to the Republican Party, which feels like almost like an old story now, although obviously it's not, but also just the 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 toxification of politics, the, mm -hmm. the the empowerment of the white nationalists, you know, the extremist groups like the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, you know, the uh, all of these, the Boogaloo Boys, the fact that we're even talking about these guys, you know, this is this is what can happen in a country in just four years with mm -hmm. Donald Trump. And um, yeah. I suppose we ought to be thanking our, you know, thanking Providence that we don't have eight years of Donald Trump. Well, that's right. Um, several things broke the right way. Most, most importantly, 
Donald Trump continued to break the wrong way and show people who he was. Listen, there, there have been points, and we've talked about them uh, over a few years, Charlie. There have been points at which Donald Trump looked briefly like a reasonable president. That is, he could take two or three minutes and read a prepared statement um, and, and make it look like he was doing something. He could actually sign a bill that was not destructive. You know, He could do minimal things that presidents routinely do. And at each of those moments, there was the hope among many people. There was the hope that perhaps he was growing into the office. Um, and people would say yeah. this from week one to year one to the final year of his presidency. Um, but the fact is they've only ever been glimpses. They've never yeah. been sustained. And, and, and of course, of people may have believed that at a yeah. time. People People may have believed it, but then, you know, guys like me were standing up and, you know, jumping up and down going, give it a minute, give yep. it a minute. It's not yep. going to last. No, Donald Trump has suddenly not become not Donald Trump. Donald Trump is Donald Trump. So, yep. okay. So what you, what did we learn over the weekend? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to catch up. It's, it is, it is Monday. And I think it's extraordinary the pace at which we are getting more information about what happened on January 6th, more information about how violent it was, how close to a mass uh, casualty event it was. Uh, we're getting information about how intimately involved the Trump campaign and Trump insiders and activists were in putting that together. We're getting more information about the number of these rioters who were claiming that Donald Trump invited me into the Capitol, Donald Trump's, uh, the way in which his words, um, you know, in, in, in emboldened them. And it, it just seems like the case that Donald Trump, Donald Trump's big lie about the election, which was premeditated, great reporting by Axios, mm -hmm. that is the incitement. It is, the lie is the incitement, not just the words. It's interesting right. that every once in a while I'll, I'll see a quasi defense or sort of an anti anti Trump defense. Well, well, you know, Donald Trump only said, you know, go and fight. And that's just, you know, normal hyperbole. It's not what he said on January 6th. It's the entire lie going back months and months and months. The power of the big lie is really behind everything here, isn't it? Yeah. And I got to tell you, there's been some criticism of the article of impeachment because it seems to focus so much mm -hmm. on the event itself. Right. But if you look at the report that was issued by the House Judiciary Committee, that is, I think it was called something uh, typically government speak, like materials in support of HRES 24. But essentially, it is the, the full impeachment report. Hmm. And right in the introduction, in one of the earliest paragraphs, they write, President Trump has engaged in a prolonged effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election and maintain his grip on power. He has spent months spreading disinformation about the results, falsely claiming he won by a landslide, and so on, and so on. He has stated it would be illegitimate to accept the results of the election as certified by state officials and upheld yes. by state and federal courts. It it goes into that very factor, Charlie. It lays out that this is not an issue that he said and did the wrong thing for a few minutes. It's part of a long effort, and the impeachment is in that context. With that, along with all the information that continues to come out about just how serious this was, um, it should make an impeachment conviction a much more likely prospect than it was uh, even the day of the event. It should be if the Republican Party still has still has any sort of instinct or tradition of putting country over party or truth mm -hmm. over the big lie. And well, I, we've I, seen I, it, and we've seen it in the House of Representatives. I and know. it's funny how 
courage can be contagious. Uh, it's not it's not necessarily the first person to stand up and say this is wrong. Uh, Mitt Romney exposed that in the last impeachment trial. It's the first follower effect. And the person who says, you know what, I'm going to join in. And we ended up seeing 10 representatives uh, when some people predicted that we would see maybe one or two. Um, we saw 10 representatives vote to impeach the president on this article. Um, the Senate, I don't know where it's going to go. Um, both of us have been wrong many times before, and I've been wrong twice on things related to this. Number one, I thought that a Senate conviction of Trump for the first impeachment was at least a real possibility. I didn't call it likely, but I said not to rule it out too soon because I thought things take momentum and a couple of wrong breaks, such as perhaps John Bolton testifying, could have created that follower effect in the Senate where you found some people uh, getting their courage didn't happen. The other way I was wrong was on this article of impeachment, Charlie. I said Wednesday night and into Thursday, this is a case where there should be immediate impeachment and immediate trial. You mm -hmm. change the rules of the House. You change the rules of the Senate so you can bring the case immediately because he is a clear and present danger. And I noted the rhetoric of Nancy Pelosi and others were, on the one hand, he's a clear and present danger. He's an immediate threat. He must be removed right away. So let's take the weekend off and then let's go on recess. And those two were out of sync. And yeah, it sure, sure occurred to me that that's not the way to pursue this if he truly is a danger every day he's in office. It's about getting him out as soon as possible. But I have to say, with the investigation and the reporting and the information that has come out, we know a lot more now than we did the Thursday morning after the assault on the Capitol about just how deep and just how sick this plot was to get into the Capitol and try to overturn the result of the election. And that, in fact, may make it easier for some senators to convict. If, if in fact, they are making a decision based on the merits and the evidence as opposed to the usual, uh, just simple, you know, fear of the base. Right. Because here's the reality, uh, and, and this is very painful for me, obviously, but you still have the overwhelming majority of Republicans in the grassroots, the base, who are still supporting the president. An overwhelming majority of Republicans believe the big lie. In, in, in a lot of ways, I'm sorry, that is, that is a disaster for the legitimacy of American democracy that you have. You, you know, on the one hand, you have 60 some percent of Americans who believe that Joe Biden was le, you know, legitimately elected, but that's only 60 percent. Right. So you still have that. And I just I, look, um, how long are we going to expect uh, Republicans to do the right thing to show courage when they've shown us over and over and over again who they are? And like you, you point know, out in your newsletter this morning, Charlie, Ben Sass is saying almost exactly the right thing. Uh, his article in The Atlantic is spot on in so many ways, but he's still talking about let's wait till the president leaves office. And he's still writing this in January of 2021. Um, this is exactly the kind of article that should have been written uh, years ago. And yet he waited until what? hours left in the Trump presidency to publish this? All right. So here, here's my take on on Ben Sass. He writes, when Trump leaves office, my party faces a choice. We can dedicate it ourselves to defending the Constitution and perpetuating our best American institutions and traditions, or we can be a party of conspiracy theories, cable news fantasies, and the ruin that comes with them. We can be the party of Eisenhower or the party of the conspiracist Alex Jones. We can applaud Officer Goodman or side with the mob he outwitted. We cannot do both. Hmm. Now, my, my only real quibble there is that, you know, Sass is wrong. You have to wait till Trump leaves office. I think the choice is, 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 is right now. 
Um, but but he's absolutely right. I mean, th- this is this is this this moment where the Republican Party has has embraced this big line. You, you know that I in my newsletter this morning I said there's you know three votes that are going to define the the party. Maybe the party's already defined. I, I get that, <laughs> but I'm still just struck how on the in the morning of January seventh, you know, after the riots and everything, you still had 138 House Republicans vote to embrace that big line, vote to throw out the electoral votes of uh, of Pennsylvania. I mean, this is more than a month after the attorney general, Bill Barr, you know, the Bill Barr of all people told Trump, according to Axios, told Trump to his face that his theories about the election were bullshit. I mean, all of the things that had happened after the court decision, the legislature, even Mike Pence stood up. You still had something like two thirds of the House Republican caucus going along with this notion there was something wrong with the election. And of course, there was the 126 of them that had gone along with with that bogus lawsuit from Texas. And so then 93 percent of them voted last week to keep Trump in in office. This Hmm. Senate vote is really the last chance. I mean, it really is the last chance. It is, because here's the thing is and and, and I think Senator Sass points that out in in his article that you just quoted by saying when Trump leaves office, we have this reckoning and we have a choice to make. By that point, you've already made the choice. Um, If you do not choose to actively purge Trump. Yeah. You have made the choice, which is this is acceptable behavior. May may not be what we like. It may not be what some of us want, but we are not going to formally reject it. Then then the choice is made, and it doesn't matter how many nice words that that sound like a political science professor writing an op ed. He writes um, the the party has made its choice. It still can be saved in one way, which is if there is a a firm rejection. If the senators do step up and do their jobs under the Constitution, if those who supported Trump up to and including Ben Sass, do say, I was wrong. This is why I did it. It was craven. I have learned from it. I am not going to do it again. You know, we will believe some of them. We will not believe some of them. But without that, his article doesn't really read like someone taking ownership of where we are and what we need to do. He diagnoses the problem well. But he doesn't really put his responsibility in there. Without that, it doesn't really matter because then you're not really addressing the core problem. Um, so I want to be optimistic reading that article, and I think I think Ben Sass has his head in the right place. But honestly, I don't think that's the way out unless you take a firmer stand. No, I well exactly. So I mean that that's why this vote is so is going to be so definitional for the Senate Republicans, because they're going to have to, you know, I, I know that they would want to put this in their rearview mirror. You know, Lindsey Graham mm-hmm. thinks, you know, we, we got to heal the nation. I mean, can we right. just re- repeat this point? Um, you're not going to heal the country as long as Republicans continue to um, go along with the lie that the election was illegitimate. I mean, this is just ridiculous that you you've you've had this this act of sedition. You have this big lie. You have Republicans refusing, continuing to refuse to acknowledge that Joe Biden is legitimate president of the United States. And and yet we're being told that oh, let 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 the impeachment go, let the let let the trial go, because that would divide the country. I mean, really, I'm sorry, bullshit. Yeah. Um, you know, you, yeah. you have to have a reckoning. You have well, to hold people accountable. And and the person you can't hold just the people who came into the capital accountable if you don't hold the man that who is the vector of disinformation the, the 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 source of the big lie which is donald trump i mean all roads lead back to donald trump 
he is he is the vector for the disinformation. He is not the source of the disinformation. It's a I don't know whether to call it a cultural phenomenon or a social phenomenon, but look, Donald Trump before running for president, his primary appeal to voters was that he was interesting, exciting, entertaining, controversial. He was a Twitter troll and he was a Twitter troll. Like most Twitter trolls, um, you can say and do anything you want without consequence, as long as it is not a direct physical threat. And sometimes even those get through, but you can say and do anything you want. It does not have to be true. And in fact, you are rewarded for the more outrageous your claim is because it gets you attention and followers. That is the cultural and social context. That is why Donald Trump became president. And guess what? That dynamic is not about Donald Trump. That dynamic is about us. Donald Trump may have taken advantage of it. Donald Trump may have been uniquely placed to take advantage of that and not show any shame because he has no sense of shame. That is all true. But that is why with no evidence, you can still have a substantial portion of the Republican Party electorate saying, oh, this was a fraud. Joe Biden didn't win the election. There's no reason to believe that. So, and yet they yeah. believe it and they act on it because there is no consequence for not believing it. That and, is the and, trouble. Right. And how, and how do you combat this disinformation? How, how do you swat down the big lie? Because there are, you know, look, the, those folks will not feel completely defeated. They'll feel that they were stabbed in the back. And that means that we'll be living with it for decades. So how do you push back on it? Well, one way is by drawing this dramatic line in the sand of history, which is to convict uh, Donald Trump and, and make him ineligible. That will be a shock to the system. But at this point, you need a shock. You need sort of shock therapy to say, look, um, you've lost this and you've lost this in a decisive way. This is so fundamentally wrong. This is not normal. We're not going along with it. The other th point that I think can't be made too strongly, I was reading, I think it was Margaret Sullivan's column in the Washington Post, where she's talking about all the things the media should do to combat disinformation. And it's filled with uh, good ideas, okay? Good, good ideas about how to frame stuff, not to repeat stuff. But ultimately, it's irrelevant because you're not ever going to get the right in America to disenthrall itself from these conspiracy theories until the right itself disenthralls, by which I mean it's got to come from the conservative media. It's mm -hmm. not going to be NPR, the New York Times, and the Washington Post can do an outstanding job, but right. they're not going to convince conservatives not to believe the bullshit until you have other conservatives be responsible. And by that, I mean the Fox Newses of the world. Um, instead of uh, kissing ass, National Review needed to be you know, a stronger bulwark against it. You're going to have to have talk radio hosts who are willing to break. Now, that's really hard because generally they are followers when it comes to the audience rather than than leaders. But something like that has to happen. You have to have trusted voices say, OK, this is wrong. So yep. when Mike Pence stood up and said, I'm not going to do this, that was an important moment for, for the right wing. Ben Sass could have done this earlier. He might have cost him his seat, but it, but it's important that it comes from conservative Republicans who do this sort of thing. But so that's why this vote is 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 crucial. Are there going to be 17 Republicans who will say, look, folks, I, I, I know what you're hearing from Rush Limbaugh. I know what you're seeing from Lou Dobbs. I know what you're reading from Molly Hemingway, you know, mm -hmm. and the folks from the Federalist. Um, but this is crap. This is the reality. And this is who we are. It's got to come from, it's gotta this come from is a new dynamic in that it took over the presidency and has dominated the party. But the, the trend isn't new. It's happened cyclically throughout American history. There were 
there were people who truly believed, and this isn't figurative, but literally believed that John F. Kennedy was the Antichrist. There are people in the John Birch wing of the party who believe things that were clearly fantastical and not truth-based. But what happened? At those times, party leaders and the party mechanism overall was an arbiter of truth. And when there were people that were beyond the pale, they pushed them aside. Maybe they didn't quite crush them, but they ignored them or they made sure that they did not get through primaries, that they did not get committee assignments, things of that sort. It's amazing when you look at the last 50, 75 years of American history that when you look at a radical senator who got way out of line, it was a Joe McCarthy type. When there were many other radical movements uh, in American, what we call counterculture, well, the counterculture is the culture now. And instead of being an arbiter of truth, the Republican Party just opened the floodgates and said, yeah, let's just go with this. Let's let's see how it ends. Well, we're seeing how it ends and it isn't good for the country. Um, What we need is Ben Sass not writing this for the Atlantic and feeling good about himself that he said the right thing, which he did. We need Ben Sass spending his time on OANN and spending his time on Newsmax well, and writing articles that show up in Parler explaining this. Now, he will be derided, he will be rejected, but you need a mass of that and then action taken based on that at the state, local, and national level in the party to say, this is not what governing is about. This is not why we seek power. We need to recognize truth first and foremost. Until we have that, Donald Trump is not the end of this problem. No, it's not the end of that problem. In fact, there's speaking of not the end of the problem, there's a great piece in Politico about uh, what's happening in with the Arizona Republican Party, um, where even after Donald Trump goes off as the defeated, disgraced uh, pariah ex-president, um, you know he's he's left so much damage in his wake, and that you have these just bizarre extremists who've taken over some of these state parties. What Kelly Ward is doing in Arizona is just destroying the Republican Party is really extraordinary. Okay, I just have a comment on, on Lindsey Graham because Lindsey Graham um, and, and T- Tim Miller and I had a had, had a, a bet which I lost rather spectacularly because I thought that Lindsey Graham uh, being the sycophant was just going to be moving his loyalty from you know one power source to another, but apparently he just can't quit Donald Trump. So he, hmm. bro- he it sounded like he was breaking up with him um, during the vote about the Electoral College votes. But right. then, and, and now he's back completely. He's, you know, being on the, he's on the phone and he's the leading defender uh, and rationalizer of, uh, of, of, of Trump in, in, the, in the Senate. But I, I, can't, I can't get over the fact that it, apparently he was broken by people being mean to him into the airport. You know what I'm talking about? So after after the vote on the Electoral College, he's at the airport, Reagan National, and people are yelling, traitor, traitor, traitor. And he's walking along and it was like, okay, you know, Lindsay, this is the rest of your life. You know, you you had been a loyalist up until now, but it's never enough. Now, you know, now you're cast into outer darkness. I don't know. It, it feels as if that shook him so much. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm not I'm not uh, a hero of Magaland anymore. That he you know that he poodled back uh, to 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 Trump. I mean these guys, yeah, their their lack of their lack of any sort of integrity backbone is just amazing. And it points you know, to we shouldn't us, be amazed anymore. It points to us too, Charlie, because all of us have a fundamental choice to make, and it's not an easy choice. This is a true ethical dilemma, which is someone who who did something wrong for so long. And let's just call it a generic person supporting Donald Trump. Um, When they come around and they say, you know what, Uh, this is finally a line, it's gone too far. 
do we accept them because you need everybody you can to reject Trump Trumpism and everything that we've talked about in terms of this culture that abhors truth? Or do you say, absolutely not. It's too late. What's wrong with you? You're a traitor. We're going to yell at you at an airport for the rest of your life. Um, I can actually understand both of these. It's interesting that somebody like um, Anthony Scaramucci, who was in the administration for a heartbeat, comes out, eventually denounces it, and and now is welcome on every single platform talking just like all of these other pundits who were denouncing Trump earlier. He's He's been deemed okay by the masses. You get Lindsey Graham, who comes out and takes one tentative step, basically moving away from the enormous black hole pull of gravity that for some reason is Donald Trump for him. He takes one step away and he gets virtually assaulted at the airport. Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't deserve it, but I can actually understand somebody saying, well, here I go after completely emasculating and embarrassing myself for years, and I finally take one step back, and instead of anybody saying, good job for doing something right finally, (laughs) you know what, they reject me anyway, I might as well go completely to the dark side and never oh, come back. I, 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 like I, th- it, I think there's, I, I think there's a lot of. I mean, look, there, there are there are people on the left who uh, continue to say there's you know no redemption for people like me, even though we've been spending five years, you know, the never Trumpers who um, were opposed to Trump from the moment he came down the golden escalator. But because we were once conservatives, there's no room. So I, I get the, the yep. thing that look, you need to be able to embrace people who come to your side. There are lines. Um, I, I don't think that I'm ever going to embrace ever any of the members of the Sedition Caucus that voted against the Electoral College vote. That seems like a bright line. How right. do you feel about Bill Barr right now, by the way, though? Bill Bill Barr is one of those that's really tough because the things he did, honestly, I think you agree with me after reading the Mueller report, uh, the president was clearly yeah. Yeah. impeachable and removable for what he did that was uncovered in that report. And Bill Barr, seemingly with full knowledge and with full intent, mischaracterized it in a way that would set the narrative and make any kind of impeachment and removal unlikely for those heinous crimes. Um, To me, you cast your lot at that point. You're done. You are not let back into welcome society when you do that. Did he come out at the end and try to convince Trump not to do worse? Yeah. It appears so. That's what yeah. reporting suggests, is that Bill Barr actually had a line and he was not willing to cross it. We can we can acknowledge that and we can reward that, but we cannot forget what he did that got to that yeah. point. The very fact that he had to step away from something that was too far is because he was enabling those earlier lines. What do we do with people like that? You know what? It's an individual choice. It is to some degree a collective choice. But what I don't want is people claiming that it's an easy choice. It is not. So we're finding we're, we're hearing now that the president is going to be making um, as many as 100 pardons tomorrow. Obviously, tomorrow's going to be the day because, well, it's got to be the day. So Washington Post is saying that Trump is preparing to offer clemency to more than 100 people in his final hours. And the New York Times had this really interesting piece over the weekend. Prospect of pardons in final days fuels market to buy access to Trump. Yep. And of course, uh, all of the the, the bootlickers, they're justifying their, their bootlicking because, look, I'm, I have access. I can I can get the president on the phone. I might be able to get yep. somebody, might get somebody pardoned. And people are paying them big dollars to do all of that. So mm-hmm. here's a sleazy end to a sleazy chapter. Let me give you a contrarian view of this, Charlie. I think if these reports are true, that he is considering 100 or over 100 pardons, um, 
and it's been all all this exposure and all these people are coming out talking about people claiming that they can pay for pardons. This is great news. Why is this great news? Because Donald Trump could burn it all down on the way out. He yeah. literally could say everyone who is in every jail in America for only for multiple murders and rapes will be let out right now. He could say that every federal prisoner who is in Delaware could be let out just to try to spite Joe Biden's state. He could do a lot of things that are really, really bad. And if he lets go 100 prisoners, half of which are celebrities that had drug crimes or whatever it is he wants to emphasize because it gets him more attention, this is actually a better result than he could do. And I'm actually glad to see some of this reporting coming out of people who were ma either making queries about pardons or were approached about whether they wanted to seek a pardon and claims of money were involved because you've got witnesses, you've got FBI investigations and trying to buy a pardon can be a crime. And this is going to be a way of reckoning with one aspect of the Trump administration that would have been relatively hard if it were all under the surface. So frankly, I think the way the pardon thing is showing up is relatively good news because it could be so much worse. No, well, it could be so much worse, but also within that hundred, um, I guess I'd, I have I have three big questions, things I'm going to look at. Number one, um, more of the Trump crony pardons, uh, Steve Bannon, some of those folks, yep. Um, yep. which I think is more likely than not, uh, highly sleepy. Um, obviously, the the biggest one would be the self pardon or the pardon of his kids, which appears yep. to be less likely as we get closer to it. And there's been all this speculation about whether he might pardon the people who broke into the Capitol, which I think yep. is also unlikely, especially because you have a dead police officer. But but if he did, there are things that he could do in the next 24 hours that could change yep. the entire dynamic of the impeachment trial. I mean, that, this, that, that, that could be it. If he if, in fact, he issues certain kinds of pardons, you know, for example, if I think that if he pardoned, and I think that, by the way, Lindsey Graham believes this as well, that if he pardoned the protesters, the people who invaded the Capitol, I think that would guarantee that he'd be removed from office. I think that's it. It'd be like, you know, shooting himself right in the head. I, I agree with you, um, but I have the asterisk of caution because um, we could replay the tapes if we wanted to for how many times you and I have said, I know. if this, then this, and then the the cowardice of the, the Trump supporters yeah, that, came through. So I still have a little bit of hesitation about that, although overall, I agree with you. That would be so egregious that even in the wake of an impeachment and a potential conviction, if he were still to do that, it would be even harder for people to support. You saw that uh, over the weekend, uh, Carl Rose said that if if uh, if Trump has Rudy Giuliani uh, as his def you know chief of his defense in, in in the Senate, he'll guarantee his conviction. And Rudy Giuliani is out there saying, you know, I, I will relitigate all the voter fraud issues, all of those things, which apparently is freaking out even the people in the White House. So you know, he here we are, that the president, we are what two or three days away from the beginning of a trial, or you know, four days, or whatever. And nobody knows who's going to defend the president of the United States. That's an amazing moment. Yeah. And and to me, I think the ultimate showman move would be for Trump to try to represent himself um, <laughs> to get attention. And, you know, would be there hard. are many lines about having a fool for, a for your own client. But if he were truly looking for a show, um, he might try it. Of course, he's never done that before. And I don't think he will. It's not in his experience um, to, to be in that role. But to me, I don't think he is counting on a reasonable defense to save him. And I don't mean that he doesn't think he will be saved. I mean, he thinks no. he doesn't need a reasonable defense. Um, he did right. not need the legal team that he had 
in the Senate the last time because they were not going to convict him. Um, you, you could have had Rudy Giuliani up there then, and it would have been just fine. I think this time um, he probably feels the same way, which he, he does not need to defend himself seriously because the people who are judging him uh, in the Senate trial are not looking for reasonable defenses. They're yeah. looking for any possible excuse to just put them this behind them and pretend that the bad things never happened. We're going to see very, very shortly. David Priest, thanks so much for joining us on today's Bulwark podcast. It's a pleasure. Appreciate it. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we'll do this all over again.